All right. If you've got a Bible, you can open to Revelation 8. We'll look at the first five verses of Revelation 8 this morning. And the text is also printed in the bulletin there for you. <clears throat> so, here's a big question. Um, does it do any good to pray? I mean, I think it's a big question for a lot of people. And the basic answer for a lot of people is no, it doesn't do any good to pray. Uh, whether they would say that out loud as the actual answer to that question or whether they, that's just some deep, deep running uh, subterranean belief that they have, which leads them not to pray. Um, the basic answer for a lot of people is no, it doesn't do any good to pray. So they don't pray. Some believe uh, that God doesn't exist. So prayer is a pretend thing. It's like talking to an imaginary friend. And grown-ups don't think that's real, so it doesn't do any good to pray. <laughs> but uh, some believe that uh, God doesn't hear, or God doesn't much care, or doesn't answer our prayers. So, so prayer seems to be a waste of time. Maybe that's just the way they've felt about their experience of God. Or <clears throat> some believe that God is um, like too sovereign for prayer to make a difference. He already knows what he's going to do anyway. He's going to do it. So prayer doesn't really change anything, and it doesn't really matter. It doesn't do any good. Um, maybe there are other deep-seated beliefs that lead us to answer, no, it doesn't do any good to pray. <clears throat> uh, maybe there are other reasons that you don't pray. I won't claim to be aware of all of them. But, uh, but our passage this morning addresses some of the big ones. <clears throat> and the big takeaway is that in God's reality... He wants us to know. The answer is yes. Does it do any good to pray? Yes, it does. Um, maybe it's beyond our ability to conceive or comprehend how. But yes, it does tremendous good. It does cosmic level, world altering good. To pray to the Father through the Spirit in the name of the Son, Jesus. So let's do just that right now. And then we'll read this scripture. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your disciples have always come to you for help with prayer. And you have taught us how. And sometimes we struggle with why we should pray at all, whether it does any good or not. So we ask that you would please send your spirit rushing into our hearts, bringing all the help of God to us as we consider your word this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Revelation 8, starting in verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> In John's vision... Um, Things are, are revving up in heaven, ramping up. 
since the crucified and risen and ascended Lord Jesus began to reign, the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who is worthy, has received the scroll from God, which is the symbol of God's authority, and it's the uh, sort of the symbol in this vision of God's plan for his kingdom advancing in the world. Um, to this point, the Lamb has been just opening the seals on the scroll in the big buildup, right? The buildup to the big reveal when he opens it, and its contents are proclaimed with these trumpets that have been handed to the angels. And then comes the rolling out and the implementation of God's plan. So anticipation has been building. Tension is thrumming in the air. Jesus opens the seventh and final seal. We reach this sort of crescendo. And then there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. <laughs> and uh, it seems a bit anticlimactic, to tell you the truth. <clears throat> so why the pause? Uh, there's a there's a sense in which the book of Revelation is a liturgy. It's an earthly worship service. That's sort of the, the original context for John writing when he began to receive these visions from Jesus. It's an earthly worship service that's been overlaid or mapped over by these symbolic visions of heavenly worship. And there's, <clears throat> there's a lot of aspects of this book that correspond with elements of our worship, our worship service, our liturgy. Or maybe we could say that this book reveals the fact that a lot of the elements of our worship correspond with heavenly realities that, that are being revealed here. So we leave some space in our worship for silence, some, right? Um, imagine if it were half an hour long, though. <laughs> Awkward, right? Uh, of course, that length of time is symbolic. It doesn't necessarily mean <clears throat> for exactly 30 minutes. Um so, so what does this half hour of silence mean? There's all this buildup. There's all this excitement being generated. All this anticipation. <clears throat> and then silence. Is the silence an interruption? Is the silence a rest? Is the silence a moment of suspense? Is heaven silent or is God silent for a reason? Did he put things on hold? Did he give up on his plan entirely? Is the vision coming to an end here? Did he cut off the conversation and stop communicating and stop uh, revealing? Is he still there? Paying attention? Silence is confusing to us. How the silence of heaven is perceived can be unsettling to us. It can lead to... <clears throat> Insecurity uh, can lead to doubts, can lead to fears. Silence basically generates big questions because God is a God who speaks and makes promises to his people and he's made us in his image for a relationship with him that involves uh, communication, conversation, right? And when this God goes silent, it's troublesome. And so we go to him with our big questions about that. In prayer. And this has been a regular experience of the people of God throughout history. A great example of it is in the story of the Exodus, where God was silent. So you could say heaven basically went dark for 400 years. And it seems like <clears throat> over such a long time, the people of God sort of got used to the silence. They, they, maybe they learned to expect little from God. 
Maybe they even began to forget about his promises to them. There was a lot of development in the book of Genesis, right? A lot of build-up and big expectations being set forth, big anticipation. Everything's ramping up in the book of Genesis, and then the people of Israel heard nothing for 400 years and found themselves in a place of real misery and real slavery. It says in Exodus 2, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then the centuries-long silence was broken, and God came, and he said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. So God's silence did not mean he was absent. It did not mean he was uninvolved. It did not mean he didn't care. It did not mean that he gave up on his plans or his promises to his people. We learn later that the 400 years of silence was according to his plan. It was planned out, that silence was. Just like we learn in our passage that the silence in heaven is part of his plan. It's triggered by Jesus opening the seventh seal. So one thing we know about this silence is that it's according to God's deliberate plan. And the silence is preparatory. It sets the stage for the next element of the the heavenly liturgy. Just like when in in the progress of our liturgy, uh, there's some silence in between the, the movements of our worship. The musicians will take the stage in a moment of silence after the previous element of worship. So as there's silence here, and it seems that everything in heaven has gone dark, the trumpet angels take their places and trumpets are given to them and they stand at the ready for the next bit where it's going to get really loud. <laughs> uh, when, when heaven is silent, when God is silent, even if we don't understand all the reasons why he is silent, God has revealed that things are still happening. Things are still unfolding according to God's good plan. And that's hard to accept. And there are plenty of psalms and there are plenty of biblical prayers that express the anguish of waiting to hear something from God. Why don't you respond to us? Do you hear? When are you going to answer? But it's revealed that silence on God's part does not mean that God is checked out. Surely he has seen the affliction of his people and he has heard their cry. Even if it feels like dead air, even if it feels like it's some anticlimactic thing that you you thought you had bigger expectations for God or something was building up to some sort of anticipation. Even, even if you're so used to the silence that you've learned to expect very little from God, his silence is not the end of the conversation. It's preparation for more. It's not the end of the conversation. It's preparation for more. And this is the fantastic part of our passage. The silence in heaven is actually broken by our prayers. When our prayers are presented to God by Jesus. The silence only lasts for a half hour. So the way that John writes, when he uses the language of an hour, 
uh, an hour is sort of a unit of time. It's a, it, it's a, a time that uh, talks about a fulfillment, right? An hour is a fulfilled amount of time. It's a complete amount of time. So a half hour is symbolic of something being cut short. It's, it's something going unfulfilled. <clears throat> so the silence in heaven is incomplete. The silence is interrupted. And this is going exactly according to God's plan. It's like God wrote in his daytimer, an hour of silence beginning at 10 a.m. And then scheduled himself to be interrupted by our prayers at 10.30 a.m. God is interested in continuing the conversation. And in his sovereign plan, he makes space for our prayers. While the trumpet angels are assembling and preparing for the next phase of developments, it says in verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Um, so I think it helps to have some picture of the furniture of the tabernacle, right? The layout of the tabernacle, the processes of worship that took place in the tabernacle or in the temple of ancient Israel. As the priest would move from the outside of the temple to the inside, to the, the holy place on his way to the most holy place where the glorious presence of God was enthroned upon the cherubim. First, he would come to one altar. It was a, a bronze altar. It was a wood, wood altar uh, covered with bronze, which was, <clears throat> it was for making sacrifices and making burnt offerings. And the sacrifice uh, would ascend to God in a consuming fire and smoke. And it was a, it was a substitute, it was a substitutionary sacrifice to represent our ascension to God, to his presence in heaven. And then the priest would move past that, that altar and he would come to a second altar, which was a, a wood altar, but overlaid with gold. It was a golden altar where he would light incense to represent the prayers of the people. And so this, this other angel comes in John's vision, and he comes like a priest from the first altar to the second, from the sacrifice and the burnt offering of, or ascension to the altar for incense where he offers up the prayers of the people. He goes through the ascension in order to offer the prayers of the people at the golden altar. So these are actions that are explicitly described in other parts of the New Testament as being performed by Jesus himself, right? So Jesus is this other angel, just as he was the other angel last week, ascending from the rising of the sun to seal God's people. Uh, Jesus is the high priest who carries our humanity into God's presence in his ascension as our substitute Jesus is the one who presents our prayers to God, purified and made a lovely fragrance in his name. Prayers that are offered in his name. So he's the one. Jesus is the one who is so bold as to break the heavenly silence on our behalf. He's the one who makes our prayers very fragrant with much incense. He makes our prayers smell good to God, so to speak, in order to bring them before the throne. So it says in verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. 
So I think here uh, <clears throat> that Christ's people at prayer, Christ's people, Christ's church at prayer, are represented by the golden censer. And our prayers are represented by the smoke of the incense, which is a way of communicating through this heavenly vision that we, Christ's people at prayer, are beautiful and precious to God. Like golden censer is beautiful. And that he loves our prayers and they delight him. He's pleased when our prayers break the silence of heaven. And in some marvelous way, according to his sovereign plan, God is also provoked to action by our prayers. Our prayers don't just uh, pacify him or lull him into being cooperative, like, like smoke used to calm an angry beehive. Our prayers have something more like the effect of smelling salts to him. Uh, they're provocative. Maybe, um, maybe we can think about it this way, since smelling salts work by actually being unpleasant, um, the acrid odor of them, it's maybe better this way. Our sense of smell is linked to our memory. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you understand that experientially. When you smell certain scents, it can activate certain memories and actually bring them to mind very vividly, right? So maybe what's being communicated here in this, sem uh, this symbol of the, the fragrant smoke of the incense of our prayers is that God is moved by the fragrance of our prayers presented by Christ to remember to remember his covenant, to remember his promises, to act upon them, which is the thing that he said uh, in Exodus when he heard the prayers of his people, that he remembered his covenant. Not that he had forgotten somehow before, but, but now that he was being moved to action. God's revealed it, whether we can fully comprehend it or not. He's revealed it. The incense of our prayers is pleasing to him, and the incense of our prayers is provocative to him. Our prayers are incorporated into his action plan, his sovereign plan for the advancing of his kingdom. So in Psalm 141, which we, uh, we sang just uh, a minute ago with the, the children's song, David prays this. He says, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So David, in this psalm, he demonstrates he sees the link between the symbols of tabernacle worship and the spiritual realities of our relationship with God in prayer. And when he calls upon the Lord to receive his incense prayers, he then goes on through the rest of the psalm to make those prayers about his own salvation and his discipline, right, sanctification, and about his preservation. And he asks for God's righteous judgment to overtake the wicked, even, even doing that as he speaks the good word to them. So these are the kinds of prayers that Jesus makes fragrant to the Father. Right? The kinds of prayers that he teaches us to pray. Think of the Lord's Prayer when his disciples asked him, teach us how to pray. Think of the kinds of prayers that we find in 150 biblical psalms. And throughout the rest of the scriptures, these are the kinds of prayers that, that Jesus makes fragrant to his Father. It isn't just anybody's idea of prayers. 
that are that that are pleasing and provoking to God. You ask him whatever, and he's thrilled with it. It's not just that. Um, when instructions were given about the the tabernacle furniture and the incense that was to represent the prayers of the people, God's people were strictly warned not to mix up their own incense, right? But to mix certain ingredients according to a certain recipe, which is to say that God tells us how to pray. He teaches us what, what prayer is. So the incense prayers that Jesus carries before the throne, the incense prayers that are pleasing and provoking to God are prayers that he has taught us to pray. They're prayers for the kingdom of God. They're prayers for the salvation of ourselves and others by God's grace. They're prayers for our our discipline and our sanctification and for enduring faithfulness. They're prayers for the Lord to bring his justice upon the earth. So as the lamb opens the seventh seal, this is what happens. There's silence at first, perhaps a confusing silence, but really a preparatory silence uh, with a scheduled interruption. God welcomes our prayers to break the silence. He loves it. He receives them as presented by Christ. He hears our cry. He loves our prayers and he's moved by them to action. And this is the action that he planned, which is the great action of the final seal. It's the great action that transitions <clears throat> from just the opening of the, the seals to the opening of the scroll and the trumpeting of the contents of the scroll of God's kingdom. This is what happens in verse five. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So if the, if the golden censer is the people of God in prayer, the fire from the altar is the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, anoints us with his own anointing. He baptizes us in fire, right? He fills the church with the fire of the Holy Spirit, and he casts us upon the earth to set the whole thing on fire, right? In response to our prayers, Jesus fills us with the Holy Spirit who comes into the world through the church to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and to call peoples to repentance and faith in the Lord and to advance the kingdom of God in the world. In the Bible, God's righteousness and God's judgment are often portrayed in tremendous pictures like this lightning storm or the earthquake, right? Uh, not just because of the cataclysmic effects of his judgment in the world, that's true, but also because these forces, a lightning storm and an earthquake, they're well beyond our control. We can't make those things happen, right? Human beings cannot generate lightning storms or earthquakes. Uh, I, I, I think that in spite of what the conspiracy theorists will tell you, human beings cannot produce God's righteous rule in the world either. We, we can't advance God's kingdom in the world, right? Not just by our own, uh, on our own. We don't control God by our prayers, just like we don't control the storm or the earthquake, right? But God reveals that he is pleased and that he is provoked 
by our prayers and the sovereign God somehow works it into his eternal plan to do us the honor of responding to our prayers, to the prayers of his people in Christ to just turn the world upside down. The book of Revelation is a sort of a sequel to John's gospel, which is kind of parallel to the way that the book of Acts is a sequel to Luke's gospel, right? So you've got Luke as part one and Acts as part two. And then in a similar way, John, John's gospel is part one, book of Revelation part two. So Revelation is sort of like John's book of Acts written in a very different way, right? <clears throat> but it records the mighty deeds of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, who poured out his spirit on his church and sent them out to advance his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. So in the book of Acts, which is parallel to the Revelation, in a lot of ways, uh, every time we see the disciples praying together in the book of Acts, Christ fills them again with his spirit, and the immediate effect is that they're given boldness to, to preach the gospel and to bear witness to Jesus. They're filled with fire, and they're thrown into the world, and God's <clears throat> and God strikes hearts with the lightning of his word, and he shakes men and women down to the foundation of their souls. That's what this is saying. <clears throat> so when we pray for the kingdom in Jesus' name, it is beautiful to God, and it's compelling to God, and the Lord fills us with his spirit, and he sends us out. And God does that work that only he can do. And people will repent and believe the gospel. And people will be saved. And people will be chastened and, <clears throat> and disciplined for the sake of their spiritual growth. People are preserved and kept in the love of God. And the enemies of Christ are exposed by his righteous word. All as a response to our incense prayers. So, does it do any good to pray? <laughs> The Lord reveals, and the Lord would have us believe that yes, it does. Amen. <clears throat> so let's pray. <clears throat> Father, throughout the scriptures, we find your people in prayer. We find prayers recorded for use in our relationship with you. We find your son himself, uh, God in the flesh, praying. We find ourselves welcome and we find ourselves instructed to pray in his name. We ask that you would help us to believe and make it one of the deepest beliefs that we've got that because of Jesus, you love our prayers. Because of Jesus, you hear them, <clears throat> that you change the world through them for the good of your kingdom. Please, Father, change the world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let our prayers be counted as incense before you because of Jesus, who brings them to your heavenly throne. Amen. <clears throat>